We'll open up your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. It should be page 1013 in most of the ESV Bibles. It is on mine, and it is in the Black Pew Bible there in front of you, if that's the one you're using. And we're going to be going, uh, moving forward into uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So find your place there. Well, the Winter Olympics are just about to start in a week, and that is, I'm always excited about it. I, I've always loved the Olympics. It's such an amazing thing for me, and, and not a very good athlete, to watch these amazing athletes doing amazing things that I will never be able to do. And my favorite winter sport is downhill skiing. And it, I can't even imagine what, it got, what, it, what it's got to feel like to go and, you know, be flying down these slopes at almost 100 miles an hour. I mean, that, that thrills me just to watch these guys and, and girls and women. And the bobsled and the luge. I, something about the speed at, what, at which they do these things just blows my mind. And so these are just feats of such amazing strength and skill. And most of those sports are won just by the, the sheer speed at which you actually achieve uh, compared to your, you know, the other athletes. But, but some of these sports are won by judges judging the, the performance. So take, for example, figure skating. I know absolutely nothing about figure skating, and I don't know if any of you do, but if I had to judge a figure skating competition, it would be miserable. And, and I even wonder sometimes um, what it would be like for the athletes themselves to judge their own performances and to judge one another's performances. So instead of that, they have the, this Olympic committee, and the judges they are very, very well qualified, past athletes usually, and they are good judges. They know what they're doing. They're experts in their sport. And they are there to make sure that that sport and those, are, those events are well played and done right. And, and there's no cheating and there's, you know, there's nothing happening and it's fair and it's balanced. So what a mess it would be if the athletes were able to judge their own performance and judge one another's. It would, it would, it would be drastically skewed, wouldn't it? Because we're such bad judges almost of one another's performance because we like to think we're better than everyone else. The, all the athletes would want gold. No one would want silver or bronze. So for the Olympics to work, there has to be good judges. And they have to understand the systems and the rules that are in place in order for it to work properly. If the Olympics aren't your thing, you've got the Super Bowl tonight. That's going to have judges. Those are the referees. Those are the guys who are there to make sure that the, rules, that the rules of the games are played well and that no one are cheating. But whether it's football or Olympics or whatever your sport may be, there has to be good judgment for, to see whether someone's failing or succeeding. And when we look at our own lives, I think we're also not very good judges of ourselves and one another. And we're going to be looking at a passage here today in James that really deals with this. It really deals with how, how slanted our judgment is in our favor oftentimes. Because of, we're full of, of evil pride, we think we're best at everything, and everyone else must be worse off than me, but we're really very wrong and very slanted because we just don't have the best perspective. We can't be 
coming down hard on one another because we don't fully understand the full perspective, the way our good judge does, who cares about every detail. He, he observes our sportsmanship. He watches our actions. He sees our failures. He sees when we cheat to try to get that gold medal. You see, in this event of life, will not work out when we're casting judgment down upon one another because we just can't completely understand what's going on. We just don't have the perspective that God has. He is the good and perfect judge. He is able to even save and to destroy us for our judgments. Think about that. We need to see we're not judges of one another. Rather, instead of coming down upon one another in judgment, we're to persevere alongside one another. That's what we're going to learn here today. We're going to be pushing towards the end goal of this event of life alongside one another. We're here to help encourage and engage and come alongside and to teach rather than coming down in harsh, critical judgment. Because what we're going to find here is that this kind of judgment is evil. According to James, God is our good judge, and we are evil judges. So let's see what this says here in verses 11 and 12. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? First thing we're going to see right there in verse 11 is that man is evil judge. Man is an evil judge. All along in this, this book of James, we've been seeing this, James has been describing this street-level view ground-level view of what it means for the everyday Christian like you or I to be living our lives. Does our life and our pursuits match what we say we believe? And that's what he's calling this works and faith connection. Not to be confused with a works-based faith, but he's talking about a works and a faith. Do our works, does our life match what we say we believe? And James has been laying the groundwork all along through this book for us to understand, up to this point, very specific things. And I think now he's going to be transitioning out of the way we've been speaking and the way we've been acting. And this is where he's really kind of summarizing so many of the things that came before that in chapter 3 and 4. And, and what he's really saying here is, show me your, work, your faith by your works. That's, exact, that's, that's precisely what he's trying to say here. And if we can't, we have to ask ourselves then, what is our faith based on? Is it based on our words? Because James has also made it extremely abundantly clear that our words are very fallible and full of sin. And so if our faith is based just on our words, then just how topsy-turvy is our faith? So James' definition up to this point, let me synthesize this from everything we've learned up, up to here, is that this, this works coupled with faith is a life of complete surrender, faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a life, a life of complete surrender, surrendered faith in Jesus Christ, committed to loving others in word and deed for their well-being 
without partiality or payback because he loved us first in this way. So I just kind of tried to synthesize everything that came before us up to this point. And so that is a surrendered life that Jesus Christ committed to loving one another in word and deed for their well-being without partiality or payback. So we can't look at this passage by itself. We have to go back and look at everything that came before it. We have to zoom out and look at it in the context of the whole book. We also have to look at this and approach it in a way that we realize, we have to realize what I said earlier, because Christ came before us. He did this before us. He loved the unlovely, us, me. We have to approach this realizing we are going to love the unlovely. And it's not going to be comfortable at times. We're not going to gain any earthly reward from this. We can't do this for a benefit. We can't do this for a payback. We have to do this impartially. So we have to check our motives and our goals along the way. Last week, Kyle pointed out that humility is the really only true solution to the struggle of pride that we have that causes quarrels and fights that come from within us. They don't come from getting angry at what someone else said, like, I'm unhappy at you for what you said, so I'm going to lash out at you. No, it comes from the passions that are war within our hearts for what we really, truly want. It's, it's asking questions like, man, is it worth fighting and struggling with someone in an argument because I want to make sure my demands are heard over the realization that this is a person that, is, that has an eternal soul? Do I want to make sure my relationship is intact with them when I meet the good judge? Or do I want to make sure my demands are met? That, that's what he's saying here. Now, I'm also not saying that we submit ourselves and we allow the, the harsh brutality of others and the abuse of others to just weigh us down. I'm not saying that either. Okay, so don't hear me saying. Because if that is happening, we need to speak up quickly. We need to take a brace of action and get help. Okay, abuse is not acceptable. Rather, we need to exhort one another to be peacemakers to be impartial, to live in unity as a church. This is primarily meant for believers. Back at the very beginning of the book, he's addressing specifically the believers in a certain region. And so this command, these commands are meant for the church, but we're going to live them out in the world around us. We don't just live only with one another, right? We have work, we have school, we have unbelieving family. So it's meant to be lived out in the world around us. The other thing I want to point out about this that we need to keep in mind is that these two verses display the only two options we have as Christians when it comes to judgment. And here's the two options. Either one, we're judges with evil intentions, or two, we live in surrender to God's good judgment. There are no other options for us. There's no information here on saying, hey, you could be a better judge if you did this or that. No, there's no other option. He simply says, do not do it. Do not do it. I know we, a lot of times we like to think there's other options for us or this doesn't apply to us, but that's just not the case. This applies to every single one of us here. Okay? So now let's look specifically at the verse, verses. So do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Well, evil... Is anything short of coming alongside in an understanding way, edifying with careful words, meant to bring godly change? Even when you're angry, 
even when someone's hurt you, even when this is a bad situation and it just feels uncomfortable and I want to get out of here. I want to escape. You have to ask yourself, what's behind these words I'm choosing to say? Remember what he said earlier in the book? Slow to speak, slow to anger. I mean, he's been building up to this. Why would he say slow to speak, slow to anger? Why are you saying the things you're saying? Why am I saying the things I'm saying? Is it to build others up or to tear them down? So here's an example of this. This is really simple. I think it's easy for us to go to like the extreme of what this might look like in our lives and almost picture a horrible, you know, miserable situation. Okay, but here's how simple this really could be. And I'm going I'm to pick on myself because I say stupid things a lot. But some, someone might say, man, did you hear what Travis said? Man, what a jerk. Like, that's as simple as it can be, saying that about someone else. I have said this. <laughs> I have done this. Man, that guy's an idiot. I think I did it on my drive here this morning, actually. I was driving down Kirby and... I'm like, it's a, two, you know, it's a four-lane road, and some guy pulls around me and just gets right in front of me and splashing slime and junk all over my, my windshield. I'm like, man, i got to clean my windshield. What an idiot. I'm like, no. That, I mean, even that is a judgmental statement, and it's simple, and it's quick, and we're so natural to do it. But that's how easy we are to just cast down a judgment, and we have to be careful Christians, we have to be careful with our words because words are powerful. Keith did a wonderful job of explaining this a couple of weeks ago. Our words are so powerful we don't even realize it. Our words damage others and they cause evil. And they could potentially lead others to evil as well, and they probably will. Our, our damaging evil words will cause others towards evil. And this isn't the way we're meant to be as a church. This isn't the way the Christians are meant to live. We're not meant to live evil lives. Because evil is following the father of lies. It's following Satan rather than following Jesus. Who do you want to be your good leader? Do you want it to be Satan or do you want it to be Jesus? I think it's that simple. It's this contrast that we're looking at here. So looking at the second part of verse 11, he says... The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So why would speaking against a brother be compared to judging the law? I had to, I had to really stop and slow down and think about this a lot during my study on this passage. Why would speaking against a brother or sister be compared to speaking against the law and judging the law? Let's think back for a second here in James, back in, in James 1. He said one, in, in one twenty five, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the law that James is referring to here in these verses, 11 and 12, is this law of liberty that he's been talking about ever since chapter 1. And it's based on it's based on this implanted word, which we learned is Christ, Jesus, because it's able to save our souls. And James talks about this in this interesting way. He uses this term law 
because it does refer to the very word of God manifested in Christ Jesus. That's why it's able to save our souls, okay? So, he uses the law of liberty as our guide and our judge, and it is perfect. It is the perfect law. It's the law of Jesus Christ. It is his gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? It's just his use of the term law here. The law is the guiding path. This law is the guiding path for every believer. And it's the good and perfect judge that we surrender to. So, this is why he's saying when you judge a brother or sister, you're judging the law. You're essentially judging Christ. Is that clear? Man, because it took me a while to get that. So, by speaking evil about the law, we're judging the law, we're judging Jesus. We're judging Jesus Christ, the the one who redeemed us, the one who forgave us, the one who owns us, the one who owns that brother or sister that we're speaking evil against. This was hard for me when I first got this and grasped this, okay? So how is this that we can actually judge Jesus, who is our judge, when when what we're trying to do is we're trying to like dethrone him in that moment. We're trying to take his crown from him. We're trying to minimize him. Well, can we actually do that? Think about how insane that is. Can we really actually do that? That's why he calls it evil. Because it's evil. We can't actually do that. We can't actually ultimately judge Jesus. It's satanic. It's what Satan tried to do himself. Back to a sports illustration here for just a minute, because I got Super Bowl in my brain. It's like I remember this happening one time in uh, high school football, and I've even seen this happen in professional football, where a referee throws a yellow flag, and the player picked up the flag and stuck it under his jersey and tried to hide it. It's like everyone saw him throw the yellow flag. That's a, that's a penalty flag. That meant you did something wrong. That meant, meant you broke the rules and you broke the laws of the game. And then the player tried to pick the flag up and hide it like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. And he tries to walk away and hide it. Well, he's judging the judge. He's telling the judge, you're wrong. No, the judge actually saw him do something wrong in the game. So now he's judging the player. It's insane. He's not going to get away with that. It's not like hiding the flag is going to take away the fact that he actually broke the rules of the game. You see how ridiculous that sounds? That's why I say it's, an, it's, an, it's like this temporary insanity when we, we begin to distort and break the rules in our brain about what this person did to me is wrong and I'm offended and so I'm going to come down harshly on them and I'm going to judge them for what they're doing to me because I feel all bad and twisted up inside and I need to get my feelings out and I need to, I need to bend the rules a little bit. We cannot do that. That's why I keep saying this is actually insanity. We can't actually undo what Jesus has literally done for us. See how ridiculous that sounds? But in our hearts and in our relationships, that's what we do when we judge and we come down hard and we accuse and we blame for our own faults. So we're not good judges. We have evil intentions. Judging a brother or a sister is judging Christ. 
Because Jesus lives in that person. He lives in us. Okay? And we need a good judge instead of our evil intentions and our evil judging. So let's move on into verse 12 where we see that. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. Well, God is the only one in the entire universe able to really judge as this passage is intending. And he's the only, he is the good lawmaker and judge. So how does that work? He's a lawmaker and the judge, okay? That's not how it works in our government. This is where we actually see this, and it's a little bit, I think, a little bit confusing and not maybe necessarily intuitive to us because we go, okay, how can someone be a lawmaker and a judge? Because what we see in government is that you've got division of responsibility and power, and you've got lawmakers who are separate from the judges. This description of God is a little bit more like an ancient monarchy where the lawmaker is the judge. He carries out the judgment and the punishment. This is a little bit difficult for us to grasp. But here's a few reasons why. I wanted to lay out a few specific reasons why, why God makes a good, ju- a good lawmaker and judge. Okay? So these are just a few. I'm going to just pick out a few because here, here's number one. God is perfect in every way imaginable. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see the, a repeated word that God is one. Okay? God is one, meaning he's perfect in every way. He, he contains everything within himself that he needs for, for everything, and he created everything. He made it all from himself. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, which is God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of, God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's from Deuteronomy. One thing, a little side plug here I'm going to say is go back and read your Old Testament, guys. It's going to make the book of James make so much more sense to you. Go back and start reading the Old Testament. It's, a, it's an amazing, there's so many amazing allusions in this book to the Old Testament. It's going to make so much more sense if you're continually reading your Bible. And the next reason I see why God is a good judge and, and lawmaker is he's independent. Grudem says God doesn't need us or the rest of creation for anything Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. We can bring him joy like a parent with a child. Can, a child can bring that parent joy. God is a father. He looks over us like a father. Acts 17, 24, 5, 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and, and everything. Again, that's another good reason why, make, why God is a good lawmaker and judge. Because he doesn't need anything from us. He can't be bribed. He can't be twisted. And God has authority. And he's existed forever. Thus, he has power. He has sovereignty. He's never not been. This is also mind-blowing for our finite brains to, to wrap itself around, isn't it? Ephesians 3.20 says... God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Those are, those, I, those are all good reasons why God makes a really good lawmaker and judge. He also has freedom. He's, he's all-powerful. And you know, the reason I picked some of these attributes about God is because these are all things that we would like to be a true of, of ourselves. 
And in the moment when we cast judgment down on someone, those are the things we think about ourselves. That we're all powerful. That we're perfect. And we have freedom. That's what I want. I want to be perfect and independent and powerful. When I take someone down with my words, I want to judge them because I think I'm better in that attempt. But what are we trying to do in those moments? Who are we trying to be? Are we attempting to be God when we're casting judgment? God is the only one that can be God. He's perfect. He's eternal. He's all-knowing, as I just said. So when we try to make God in our hearts, make ourselves gods in our hearts and dethrone God, try to take the crown from him, try to strip his robe from him, try to dethrone him in our hearts, we cannot actually live as if God is God when we're trying to be God with others around us in those moments of insanity. So this is why I say we must surrender. We have to live this life of surrender to God's authority. That's why this term surrender has become, it's been impressed upon me why that term is so important to think about. Or else we attempt in small ways to not surrender and do the opposite. Well, how does this look specifically in your life? I can probably suggest a few things. It might start with some small irritations or annoyances at a circumstance, not necessarily at a person. You don't like the way things are going. It's kind of annoying. doesn't seem right. doesn't seem like you deserve that. doesn't seem like, man, I've worked so hard. Things are not going right. And then someone says something or intervenes in some way. You realize that person who's just now gotten in the way, is holding you back in some way. And you become easily and quickly enraged and embittered and you begin saying evil things because you cannot control the circumstance. It just seems out of control. What's going on? Why is this not going right? Why is my life seeming to not make a whole lot of sense to me? And it leads us, so as, as we let that stew and continue in our hearts and we're not going to someone else and we're not confessing those sins and we're not even going to God in prayer, we're not reading his word, we're not taking him for who he is, and we just let that sit and stew in our hearts and in our minds, we become vile, become venomous. Has anyone else experienced this or is it just me? And guess what happens? It leads us nowhere except separation and isolation and distancing ourselves from God. Not embracing that opportunity that God has given us. God has given us that, that situation. That's an opportunity that God has given us to not distance us from him, but to realize our weakness, our finiteness, and his infinite love and grace and mercy, even in that difficult situation, to draw us near to him, to lean into him. To lean into the church. 
These opportunities are not given to us to draw further away. It's to depend on Jesus, okay? Allow Him to work on our hearts and in our lives to sanctify us and glorify Him. I had this situation. I had this situation a couple of weeks ago where this exact thing was happening to me, and I'm glad. I'm glad it happened to me. I was even sick that week, and man, it was a horrible week. But looking back on that, it actually helped me to think more seriously about this passage and how this is so real. And guys, if we don't get a hold of it and, and surrender to Christ and put that behind us and learn from it and move on, we'll just be so held up. We'll never move forward. And we're just going to continue in this desperate plea for control of our lives and control of those around us. We're not fixing our eyes on Christ. Just fixing our eyes on, on the troubled world around us. And yeah, that is going to deteriorate your, your faith. And it's only going to lead to separation, isolation, fear, anxiety. And you don't want to go there. You don't want to go into isolation away from people. Did you know, I've learned recently that the number one most common uh, factor in a person's life who lives to be 100 years old is not what you think it would be. It's not necessarily exercise. You know, the flu shot is higher than the exercise. Actually, it keeps them surviving until they're 100 years old. But the number one factor, they say in research, that helps a person live to 100 years old is living in healthy community. And just having relationships, having healthy relationships, uh, not, being, not, not living in isolation, and knowing people and interacting with them and having authentic, real, true, living, breathing relationships with, with people. It seems to provide a reason to live. I think that's so interesting because isolation causes death. And here's why. Another study shows, this is actually not study, this is proof, this is not scientific study, shows that in Japan, there's a, a growing aging population there because the younger population has decided not to focus on family. They've decided to focus on careers. So no one's having children. So the aging population is growing. And what's happening in Japan because of this, uh, I don't know the percentages, are dying in isolation because they don't know anyone. They don't have family. They don't have community. And these people, they really aren't even that old. Some of them are just a few years older than me. They've withdrawn from community, and they're living lives of isolation. And it's just the way that the culture around them has, has developed. They don't have any accountability in their lives, and they die young. And you know what's the saddest thing about this to me is that no one knows that they're dead for months until the landlord comes to collect their rent, finds them dead in their apartment. That's when someone cares is when they want something from them. And that made me so sad when I learned about this. It just, I was like, gosh, is there any way I could like move to Japan and start you know, ministering to these people? It's just so sad. What a sad situation. And it's real. It's a real situation. And it's increasing there. I know people are difficult. I am difficult. But I also know 
I also know people who would rather almost live in lives of isolation because they just don't like people. We can't do that either because it shows that living in isolation away from people, just disliking people, is, not, is just going to lead us nowhere. And we'll just continue to struggle in that until we see that we, our, we are our own problem. It's not a problem out there with someone else. It's a problem in here. It's a problem in our hearts. And we see that God is the good judge. And he's, according to this passage, able to save and destroy. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's why God is a good judge and lawmaker, because he has this uh, authority to execute judgment fairly. Um, I realize this is not a popular topic in the modern church. Judgment in hell is true. Judgment in hell is real. The Bible talks about it. Talks about it right here. We've got to face it. And we've got to deal with it and understand what does that mean for us as, a, as believers today? But God is able. He's power. He has power and authority to destroy our, us in our sins in hell forever. Okay? He is our judge. And he will judge fairly according to how we judge. Every word, every deed, every thought. His judgment is fair and eternal. And even at our worst, this, the Bible says here, God is actually, he's able to save. So don't just get our, our eyes fixed on the destruction. He's able to save, okay? Jesus came from heaven, having lived there <laughs> eternally with God forever, came to earth as a man lived a perfect life. He fulfilled this law. Didn't sin one time. Loved the people around him. Didn't judge them harshly. He even entered into their lives. He even entered into the lives of sinners. He took these, these sinful men who were just always bickering and fighting with one another and trained them, trained them to be disciples throughout, his, throughout the, the years he was with them. And he came to a point in his life. Think about this. The judge of the universe came to a point in his life where he then began being judged by sinners. And they cast him beneath him. And they judged him to death on a cross. To death on a cross. Because they thought they were above him. And they cast him down. And they killed him. And, he's, and, he, and he was dead. He was literally dead. Okay? But in that very crazy circumstance and situation, God was not out of control. He was in control. He was in that situation and allowed it to happen because of who we are as sinners, knowing that he, he could use this situation, he could use our sin to bring about salvation for the world, for the sinners who cast the judgment down upon him. Okay?
That's just how amazing this situation really was and how in control God really was. We're, we're, not, we're nothing but small children with behavioral problems. And God is a loving, patient father who waited. He waited through so many trying circumstances and situations and difficult people. Have you guys read the book of Genesis? Have you read the Old Testament lately? This is not a modern problem that I'm talking about here. I'm in, I'm in the middle of my Bible reading plan, and I, uh, I'm just reading this morning about Joseph um, being thrown into prison for you know Potiphar's wife accusing him of, of raping her and stuff like that. And, and I mean, so just go back and read the Old Testament. This kind of drama has existed forever. So what do we do about this? Well, first we let God be God because we're not. And no, I make that sound simpler than it is. But he designed us to be like him in so many other ways that are, that are great. And we, we get to benefit from multiple attributes of, of being like God, which are discussed thoroughly through this book. Mercy, patience, uh, forbearance, grace, love. This is the slow to anger, slow to speak kind of thing he's talking about where we get to seek holiness, strive to be peacemakers. These attributes are meant to be used every day in the good and the bad, the difficult circumstances. But we can't do this, we can't do this alone and isolate. We have to have the church. We have to have one another. We have to be in relationships, even when they're hard. Because he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? That's how he finishes that, that verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We're nobody to judge our neighbor. We're nobody to judge our neighbor. That's why we must pursue this, look at this as a posture, posturing ourselves before God in a state of lowliness. Okay? We've got to look at our Lord's lifestyle. How did he live? How do the godly men and women we see around us live? Posturing ourselves before God in lowliness. Not, you know, Christ, he didn't, he didn't abuse his power. He didn't get in good with the rich so that he might look great. He didn't distort his words and, you know, he didn't even twist the word. He lived a life, a posture of lowliness. His actions, his attitudes were always dead sinner. Dead center on the heart of God. And, and asking, what, what, what can I do to bring these people in with me towards God? To glorify Him. That's what he was, he was asking this of people all around him all the time. He didn't isolate himself even when he was tired. He did go away to pray. So that should teach us something too. Christ started in prayer. Prayer is so humble. We've got to be praying. We've got to be praying for our hearts. We've got to be praying for one another. We've got to be starting with prayer. That is, that is a posture of humility before God, saying, I do not know what to do in this situation, and I need you. I need your help. I pray for your help. 
and go from there. It's just talking to God. Seek humility. Ask for wisdom about the situation. And then in the situation where you're being confronted and you've got to deal with a, maybe, a, maybe some sinful words you said, or something you said judgmentally, what does Christ say? He says, put your, altar, put, your, put your gift down at the altar and go to your brother and reconcile that situation as soon as you realize what you've done. That is humility, guys, because pride is the opposite, and pride is thinking we already know what needs to be done, and we don't do anything about it, and we don't act upon the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is pride, which is anti-God. And James has been encouraging us, pushing us, warning us to love one another. What does it mean to love one another? How do we love? Is it just this warm emotional feeling we have for one another? Not according to James. Loving one another is, is, is humble because it's doing things for another person. It's taking the perspective off yourself. And like I said earlier, it's focusing on their needs, their They're, they're ultimately, their need to also be submitted and surrendered to Christ. That's really what it's about. It's helping them to get there. We do this in our homes with our children, with our spouses, with one another in the church. We do this at work. We love one another everywhere we go. And it really, truly requires um, a lot of humility. Because not loving is, is prideful. Because it's focusing only on ourselves. I think I've said a lot about not judging and how that is just such a satanic thing to try and dethrone God in our hearts because, like I've said, we're trying to place ourselves above someone else, and that's only a position for God. So as I'm wrapping up here, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. I, I, I love C.S. Lewis. I love his the way he writes, resonates with me. And he says this about humility. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, uh, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He, he will not be a sort of what he calls greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think of him is that he seemed cheerful. Seemed cheerful. Intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He'll be thinking about you. He'll be thinking about the person that he's talking to because you're the most important person to him. You see, humility is the answer to our problem of judgment that comes from the evil passions that are, at desi- at, at, that are desiring our hearts and are at war within us. And pride is what causes these evil judgments. As when we walk away from here today, I don't want you to ha- have to feel like you need to regurgitate everything that I've said and everything that you've, every little specific detail that you've heard about any of these sermons. 
what I want out of this is that we desire a posture before the Lord that is humble. And that we want to seek it and work towards it and practice it. And that seems a little counterintuitive that you have to work towards humility. But, it's, but I realize it's true. It's something we have to work towards. It's not going to come natural. Because naturally, what do we want? We just want ourselves. We want our pride. And it's going to seem a little odd at first. Because being hum- trying to be humble is not necessarily the goal. But as you practice it, it becomes natural. It becomes intuitive. Like this cheerful guy that C.S. Lewis was talking about. This intelligent chap. And before you know it, you'll be living a humble life. I pray. I pray we will. Because C.S. Lewis also said that pride is anti-God. And it's the reason that the devil is the devil. Because he's anti-God. So please, we need to confess our prideful evil a judgment. Surrender to Jesus, who is our good lawmaker and our judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, our true lawmaker, our good judge, God, we come before you today desiring so much of the humility that we see in Christ. God, the example that we had as our, as our older brother who went before us, and we place our lives in his hands and surrender to him. Because we really have nothing else to give. You don't look upon us with any delight because of anything that's within us or anything that we have done, but what Jesus has done before us. He loved us, the unlovely, even though we cast him down in judgment. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love for us, sinners. God, cause us to love one another well. Cause this church to grow in humility and greater dependence upon you, God. But I pray that we would be reading our Bible. I pray that we would be considering all these things daily. We would be sitting in quiet time and pondering your word in our hearts and, and how we might change as, as believers. How we might go and reconcile situations that, Lord, you would bring those up in our hearts now. And as we go through our days, may we be careful with our words, God. You are a good God. You are a good lawmaker. You are a good judge. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.